0: It's great to be together again. My name is Gabe Coyle and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And while we would love to be together, I know for some of you it's just not the right time as you're assessing kind of your risk and the realities in our world. And we want you to know we love you and we completely understand. And we're so grateful that we have this opportunity and in this venue to be able to serve you in this way. In light of that, uh, we'd love to turn our attention to Scripture. And today's Scripture is Revelation Chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. Let's hear together God's word to us. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors For their deeds follow them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for the ways in which you continue to speak. You are a God who does not allow us to stay in confusion or to clamor in the midst of mystery and darkness, but instead you are a God who speaks and brings light in the midst of darkness for those who are willing to see. Thank you that your Holy Spirit has enlightened the world by the light of your scriptures and we pray Lord that he would illuminate us in this moment, illuminate your scriptures that we can see and hear what it is you have for us as we seek to more faithfully follow you in this particular cultural moment. God we love you. Thank you for loving us first in Jesus. We trust you to speak now. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Well today it's one of those days that frankly I've been waiting on for a whole whole, whole long time. I don't even know if that's the way you're supposed to say it, but that's kind of the way I feel. I feel like there are not the right words to really bring to this emotion. Today in person, we celebrated the ribbon cutting of this wonderful gift that God has provided to our church, this beautiful downtown facility. And honestly, I remember those early days. I was 26 years old. Everything was in the back of the trunk of my car and uh, somehow I got a title called Campus Pastor and for some reason people came back. And and to this day, I still don't understand how this is happening or why it happened other than for whatever reason, God and his grace um, allowed me to play a part. And so I'm just, I'm blown away. Um, I've been praying for this moment, hoping for this moment, as I know so many of you have over the years or so many of you as you've been joining us have been longing for along with us as well. And this is an exciting moment. There's no doubt about it where we can be a church for generations to come. We've put down our roots in downtown such that as we grow older together we'll be able to send our grandkids or the grandkids that come out of this place or even generations beyond that of people coming back to this place remembering what God has been doing here now and will continue to do way past you or me. But in the midst of that, in the midst of all of that, you and I we have a choice to make. We have a pretty important choice to make here on November 1st. You see, I don't think it's an accident that the ribbon cutting and getting into this building lines up with the weekend of a pretty significant and historical national election. In the midst of so much political polarity, we have a choice to make. And all the more important for us here, Because churches throughout history, located in the center of cities, have always been places and people of influence. When protests happen, it's our streets that are loaded with folks and blocked off. When rage boils over because of injustice, it's our shops and neighborhoods that feel the impact. When politicians come, they speak from our parks and here in downtown and around. Location matters, and frankly, we're right smack dab in the middle of all of that. And so where we land on this decision is going to have massive implications not just on who we are today, but who this campus will be for generations to come. And it's hard to not think that this choice that I'm talking about is the decision that many of you are going to make on Tuesday. And I want to be clear, it's not not connected anyway to the decision you'll make on Tuesday, but it is not summed up in the polls. And don't get me wrong, the decision has everything to do with politics, actually, The question we need to ask today, and actually answer today, and so live into tomorrow, as well as Tuesday and beyond, is going to have massive implications. We have a choice to make, and here's the question that we're going to be asking, that we need to respond to as a church community, and it's this, whose politics will we be marked by? Whose politics will we be marked by? And some of you are thinking, wait, wait, Gabe, I'm just tired of all the political talk, I don't know how many robocalls or crazy texts I've received about who I'm going to vote for. And frankly, you may feel like the church has no business in politics. And partly, you're right. But in another, another aspect to this whole journey, it misses what Jesus came to do. And it misses, frankly, who Jesus is when we respond that way. You see, at the center of the Christian faith is the declaration that Jesus is king, the Christ, the promised Messiah, and in his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he's actually bringing a whole new world order, a brand new kingdom. Eugene Peterson said it best when he said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way, no one guesses. To which you may reply, well, Gabe, well, can't we just leave out all the political jargon then? Once again, Peterson is so helpful here. He says, there is no avoiding politics. The moment one life impinges upon another, politics begins. And our lives do impinge on others, whether we will it or not. No action or belief is private. When it comes to the life of the Christian, Power and politics is a part of our vocational calling, and stewarding it in a way that honors Jesus is essential to faithfulness. And so if it's unavoidable, what politics will we, together as a church, be marked by? We have a choice to make. And it's not because we're not raising this question because the election is on Tuesday, it's because the choice we make here is going to impact a, a significant trajectory of who we are as a church. And This question comes up over, and over, and over again in the book of Revelation that knew nothing about the American political system in the first century, but because it's essential to the Christian calling. And interestingly enough, here's the little surprise. In the book of Revelation, there's actually a two-party system. (laughs) Pretty astounding, right? And the choice is between two characters, the beast or the lamb. The beast or the lamb. So whose politics will we be marked by? Who will we be marked by here? What will we be marked by now? So let's take a look. This is all over Revelation, to be clear, but we're going to kind of zero in our focus in Revelation 12 through 14, chapters 12 through 14. So first, let's take a look at the beast. And I want to clarify this, okay? So Satan actually has two beasts, one out of the earth and one out of the sea, And the first beast is the one that really we're going to be leaning into today because the second beast more is the propaganda machine that seeks to support and further the the affirmation that the first beast is worthy of allegiance, okay? And so it is to this first beast we're going to pay our attention. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 through 4. We read, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." Last week we saw how this was a part of the deception ploy of the evil one. But verse four, and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Biblical scholar Paul Spilsbury, he helps us interpret this imagery in a a framework that seems a little more navigable, okay? He says, thus what the dragon calls up from the sea represents the evil systems of the world in all their forms, political, military, social, economic, and religious. John's readers would have recognized the beast summoned from the depths of the abyss as the superpower of their own day, Rome rome with her world conquering armies and blasphemous claims of divinity so let's do a little bit of a historical landscape okay the roman empire was the very definition of power and force in the first century their military might and global conquest with military bases and 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 all over uh, the known world And they were extremely marked by power and and military conquest. At the top of the power pyramid sat Caesar. And so the proclamation common on the lips of every Roman citizen was, Caesar is Lord. Rome, the city at the locus of all of this power, was known as a city on a hill. And Rome, she saw herself, just this broader structure, as divinely ordained to rule the world and claimed to be founded and supported by the gods. And so for the sake of maintaining the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, Rome used things like violence, military conquest, and promoted slavery all in the language of, in in the, the purposes of liberating the rest of the world. And so with this self-understanding, it became easy and and quite frankly often used in the way that in Roman propaganda that evil was often described as good. What did that look like? Well, violence would be rebranded as peacemaking. Tyranny and oppression were promoted as bringing liberation, right? And their propaganda machine would proclaim, look at all the good that we're bringing throughout the world, Michael Gorman biblical scholar, brilliantly writes, the imperial age is the long-awaited golden age. This is what they thought in that particular time when you were a promoter of Rome. Indeed, the eschatological age. This was in which humanity's hopes have been fulfilled and will continue forever. For those who really deeply invested in the Roman Empire, this was the golden age. Finally, enlightenment had come, although they may not have used that language. It was the idea that humanity had reached its zenith. This is the way it ought to be. In their view, heaven had already come to earth in the Roman Empire. And to thrive in that world, you had to worship the beast. What did that look like? You would pay homage and celebrate Rome's violence and its anniversaries of those violence to prove you're a patriot. You would accommodate with communal practices of hierarchy to prove that you actually are loyal to Rome. You would worship the Caesar in the imperial court to do your part to keep the peace with the gods. Actions and attitudes like these are what marked you as belonging to Rome or belonging to the beast. Now, as we mentioned last week, the number, this marking of 666 is not meant to be taken literally as if we now have this superstition about those three digits in a row anywhere they show up in the world. Numbers are symbolic in Revelation. And even John says this requires wisdom in chapter 13, verse 18. Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666, right? Rather, it represented what their politics were marked by. Their allegiance is to Rome and to Caesar, who is nothing more than a human being trying to act like God. And so with the mark as we see in chapter 13, verse 17, they could go about life as normal. If you just stuck with the status quo, if you, didn't sh- if you didn't rock the boat, you could buy and sell goods and go on with life. Now, while there are clear markers in John, and for the first century readers, they would have understood that the beast was Rome. They would have understood that. But interestingly enough, the word Rome, the actual word doesn't show up anywhere in the book of Revelation. Which makes you ask the question, why? Two particular reasons. One, probably because John is on the island of Patmos, imprisoned by the Roman Empire. And for him to write any sort of letter that specifically and explicitly pointed to Rome as some sort of beast that's attacking the church, it would have never made it off the island. Secondly, the beast language is bigger than just Rome. It was meant to forbid us by not using the language Rome explicitly, to forbid us from limiting John's apocalypse to exclusively the first century context. Once again, Michael Gorman's helpful here. He says, thus, Revelation is also a critique of all idolatries and injustices similar to those of Rome throughout history and into the present. Now, we might be tempted um, to begin to identify other countries, Or other governments or other regimes throughout history that have exemplified these beastly qualities. But the reality is we also need to come with an appropriate critical lens, not hypercritical, but a critical thinking lens to where we find ourselves today. Which means, and this is really important, Even though Revelation is often thought of as something that's going to happen someday, remember we talked about it being a prophetic apocalypse and as a circular letter applied to first century churches, we too in this century, in the 21st century context, ought to come with a lens of how this is speaking into our context today. And that means we can be marked by the politics of the beast today. And some of you are like, hey Gabe, I've given my life To Jesus, all right? I'm not going to be marked by the beast. I'm marked by the lamb. Uh, But I want you to remember, who is Revelation written to? It's not written to Rome. It's not written to Babylon. It's not written to pagans. It's written to Christians, those who have given their life to Jesus and are being tempted to actually follow the ploys of the beast. And so we too are tempted by the ploys of the beast, tempted to lay low and not make waves, say what needs to be said, do what needs to be done, compromise on our faith, or turn a blind eye to injustice just to stay out of trouble. In World War II, there was a name for such people. They were called collaborators. And here's the warning. You see, we can be so tempted to hide Jesus in abstract thinking, broader ideals that make no shape and actually take no form in present-day reality. And so we hide them so deep in our hearts, so deep in our minds, that our everyday functional hope is actually more marked by the beast. And as I've been processing Election Day, you know I mean this is a hyperpolarizing time. People are having arguments, families are breaking. I mean this is this is an intense moment. There are two major temptations for the follower of Jesus as it pertains to Tuesday when we think about whose politics will we be marked by. And I think there are two postures toward Tuesday that reveal who we've been chosen by. Two main postures, okay? And I've been tempted by both of these extremes. So this isn't a message for you out there. This is a message for us, for me as well. So, here they are, okay? We are marked by the politics of the beast when, number one, we make Tuesday everything. When we make Tuesday everything. Fear is dominating our culture right now. I've had conversations with people who are utterly terrified that different candidates are going to get into office, and the repercussions that's going to have on their lives. Fear is what drives most political ad campaigns, right? There's some voice that's deep and gravelly. He wants to take away your life of your kids. Like there's something that's like, oh my goodness, it's deeply vested in like pulling at the strings of fear. And when we let fear dominate our hearts, we make Tuesday everything. And so we show that we have succumbed to the temptation of the beast. That somehow this governmental structure is the one that can bring us the safety, the security, the hope that our hearts long for. And this is ultimately why politics have divided the church today, in this moment. It's why there's so many articles written by various Christian leaders and pastors seeking to continue to build pathways of unity by Christians who have very different political viewpoints. We're marked as a church, more often than not, more by the beast than we are by the lamb when we let politics divide us. And here's two avenues of evidence for this. One... We have begun to demonize other Christians because of their political viewpoints. That's a mark of the beast. Evidence number two, we see power as the zero-sum game. Both of those frameworks are crucial in what's dividing the church right now. And when we make Tuesday everything, we actually are overinvested. And we've given our allegiance to a party rather than seeing them as a limited partner and accomplishing God's kingdom ends. And you want to know, if your candidate or candidates don't win on Tuesday or whenever we're going to find out who wins, if you've been marked by the beast, you're going to fall into despair. It's just what happens. Or arrogance. Those are the two polar extremes. If you make Tuesday everything, if your candidate loses, despair comes knocking. If your candidate wins, arrogance comes knocking. We saw this in 2016, didn't we? When a candidate that surprised many won, it led to massive despair. And then for others, it led to arrogance in an extraordinary fashion. And some forms of injustice took a whole new flair to them, right? So there. There's these outcomes of arrogance and despair if we make Tuesday everything. Now, to be sure, Tuesday matters, but it isn't everything. So I encourage you to vote your conscience, not your allegiance. Only one deserves that vote, and it is not the beast. Which leads me to my second point. First, Tuesday, when we make Tuesday everything, we are marked by the politics politics of the beast. But then secondly, we can make Tuesday nothing when we make Tuesday nothing, we're also marked by the beast. You know when someone first meets Jesus, uh, there's life in their eyes, isn't there? They want the world to know the gospel and experience the robust implications of the gospel. It's like every nook and cranny starts to scream Jesus's name and it's like they haven't learned that you're supposed to silo your faith from like politics or something like that. But this, and I'm being sarcastic, but this posture of making Tuesday nothing, you know where it comes from? It's the slow rot of apathy. And we can all too easily go from number one to number two, where we make it everything and then suddenly a politician makes a series of promises that don't match their outcomes after they're elected. Or we consistently pursue one particular candidate and they never seem to get in office. And so after we've made Tuesday everything, when it consistently lets us down, then we make it into nothing. And the apathy slowly begins to erode our very desire to engage. And it's easy to get apathetic. It's hard to navigate the truth around candidates. There's so much falsification of information out there. You don't know what sources to trust or the frustrations around political promises that people make just to get elected and the outcomes that don't match that. You see, it's important to remember in the midst of all of that, when apathy comes knocking, it's important to remember that these seven churches that Jesus is addressing, he doesn't take them out of their cities. He leaves them there on purpose, to be a faithful presence. He leaves them there, and some are experiencing more persecution than others. And so it may look slightly different, but he intentionally leaves them in those cities. And today we have an opportunity they didn't have in the first century. They lived in a dictatorship underneath the Roman Empire. We have the opportunity to leverage our Christian witness through our vote. And this is a way we can actually pursue loving our neighbors as ourselves. We can vote with our neighbors in mind. Because policies... And elected officials impact just and fair structures and systems today. And we can have a different level of conscience as to what systems are the best in pursuing just and fair practices for our neighbors. And that matters. Not... not Not seeing these partners as our saviors, but seeing them as our partners and engaging with these partners. And it matters for refugees seeking asylum. It matters for small businesses that are seeking to create jobs to build a... a dependable economy. It matters for the lives of the unborn as well as the circumstances of the mother and those who care for that child after the fact to have a good support structure so they have built-in incentives to keep the child. It also matters for individuals facing mandatory minimums for minuscule crimes. It matters for educational reform. It matters for justice reform. So please, exercise your responsibility as a believer and vote. Some of the most important votes you can cast actually aren't even the the presidential one. A lot of the most important votes are your local votes. Who's your mayor? The governor? What are some of those key issues in your neighborhood that you need to become acquainted with? Those are some of the most impactful votes you can have. Not to say that the presidential election isn't. I'm just saying those tend to carry more weight and your vote goes a bit further. So engage. Leverage your civic responsibility as a faithful witness here and vote. Because if you don't vote, this is why this is, this is connected to the beast. You're actually surrendering to the beast. Because when you don't vote, you've applied no gospel pressure to injustice. You have an opportunity to apply gospel pressure to injustice. You've extended no civic hand of care We are in a unique moment in history in the American experiment. Leverage your authority and position as a Christian and vote. Jesus has you here. Vote for the love of your neighbor. You see, Tuesday's not everything, but it's not nothing. And those two postures, when you lean into either extremes, you've actually given in to the beast and its power. And you know what's fascinating about the outcome of both of these? If you look at chapter 14 verse 9 we read if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead you've given your allegiance to the beast he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. The outcome is destruction and pain and heartache. Don't use the ploys of the beast. Don't give your allegiance there. There is another way and for that we're going to look at chapter 14. Look at me chapter 14 verses 1 through 5. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It's those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. They are blameless. So, quick understanding of what it is we just read. These 144,000, once again, numbers symbolizing bigger realities within our text. They show us the followers of Jesus throughout history. The 144,000 is the number symbolizing all those who are followers of Jesus throughout history. And to be clear, they're not merely men, okay? This is just to capture uh, this beautiful picture of this glorious army of the Lord, okay? And the fact that they're described as virgins, this imagery is to point us to how they remain pure against the allurement of the beast. And having become disciples of Jesus and baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that Jesus directs us to in Matthew 28, they wear his name. They have it on their hearts and on their souls. He is the one they've given their allegiance to. And they follow him, do you see that in the text? Wherever he goes. And then when you jump down to verse 12, we read, And here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. That is their mark. They uphold God's ethics and his purposes in the world, and they hold fast to their allegiance, their trust in Jesus, the true Christ. And they're marked by his politics. You see, this is neither isolation nor triumphalism. Rather, this is what we see is the mark of the Lamb. Faithful presence is the mark of the Lamb. It involves this consistent willingness to be sacrificial in the way that we live our lives. It produces deep joy and a broader net of flourishing. And it's exactly what we hope to see when we come together as a church here in downtown. That's what we pray that this new church home enables us to do in a greater capacity. So for example, our desire as we seek to understand God's word is to actually pursue and seek dignity and the opportunity for the vulnerable. As we proclaim the gospel, we believe that is deeply tethered to the good work and good news that Christ has accomplished and continues to accomplish through his church. It should be a category when we go to vote on Tuesday, but regardless, we should be about the politics of presence on a daily basis. So this is what it looks like, okay? We believe in belief, belonging, relief, development, and advocacy, this whole string of what the people of God are to be about. And so belief, when we gather together on Sunday morning, we unpack the rich understanding of the Imago Dei that every human being is made in the image of God, no matter their gender, no matter their orientation, no matter their nationality, no matter their race, we are all given equal footing because of our common humanity being made in the image of God. Then, when we think about belonging, we understand that the grace of God is available to all and that we now are made into a new family in God by the power and the work of Jesus Christ for those who surrender and embrace him as King, Lord, and Savior alongside of that we look at the work that God calls us to to not only proclaim the, the gospel and word but also indeed in and bringing relief to those in crisis so we think about our west side housing brothers and sisters in low income this is why we collect thanksgiving bags every thanksgiving and not just the thanksgiving meal but the whole weekend because often these children are getting free and reduced lunch at school but since they're not in school and they're not getting their normal meals this is a whole weekend where they're without out. Food. So we collaborate with an amazing partner to continue to instill dignity, but also provide relief in a unique and difficult time. And then in development, this is why we're collecting items for Adelante Thrift, because they've started a whole organization, a whole store to keep income within a low-income community, create jobs of sustainability, and also provide goods at an affordable rate. This is a whole economic engine of development that allows that community to grow in its economic capacity. And then in advocacy, our partnership with Mission Adelante, all of this work, right, all of this, in terms of telling the true story about immigrants in our community and how in KCK they have been a catalyst to making that community more safe as well as bringing about an economic rebound. That's not the story we always hear. But we need people to be advocating for those in vulnerable spots and telling the truth about what God is doing. And so we partner with Mission Adelante and support them in their extraordinary work and seek to come alongside and sharing and proclaiming that news with them. See, it's a, a rich and robust pathway to understand faithful presence that does impact Tuesday, but it should be impacting all throughout the year. And that's what we long to be doing as a faith community here in downtown with this new space. You see, the gospel really does touch everything, everything. And if you want to put your feet up and just go about an easy life, then we've picked the wrong Lord to follow because we are called to pick up our cross and find life, to lose our life. And then we find it. It's not easy, but it is beautiful and it's easier than the rest of the world has to offer. You see, Jesus is king over all and his politics, his kingdom is supreme. True power, we come to understand, is not manipulation or force, but it's truth and love. And we are called to be witnesses today, daily into Tuesday and through Tuesday. And no matter what happens on Tuesday... Or any day thereafter, whenever we find out. We can rest confident today that the the lamb really is on the throne. You see, the beast sought to destroy him on the cross. And only doomed himself to destruction. Who else has done what Jesus has done? Who else can do what Jesus is doing? Who is worthy of our allegiance? But Christ. So downtown campus, we have a choice to make. Whose politics will we be marked by? The beast or the lamb? And more than just the lamb in name only, not just putting Jesus on a moniker, but actually following him in his means towards his ends alongside of him. May it be the lamb. May we be marked by his politics for generations to come. And as we close today, I just actually want to close out with one of the most political prayers ever written. The Lord's Prayer. Let's do that together, shall we? Our Father, who is in heaven, God, thank you for this building. Thank you for the ways that you are the author of every good and perfect gift. Thank you for entrusting this facility to us. Hallowed be your name, God, we long for you to be holy. We long for your name to be lifted high in this place, among this people, for you to be at the center of our focus and the catalyst for our faithfulness. Your kingdom come, your will be done. May we be about your purposes. May we chase hard after what you seek to do. May our loves mold into your loves. Give us this day our daily bread. God, we need you to feed us. We need you to sustain us. We need you to carry us on. May your word just bring a deep balm to the depths of our souls and energize us to live out your word in a daily and faithful way. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. God, may we be a place of mercy and compassion and forgiveness that as we receive the liberating news of the gospel and what God in Christ has accomplished for us. May we be a people then who extend this mercy and grace to others. Lead us not into temptation. When the beast seeks to lure us away with power and tyranny and oppression and force, may we instead stick true to your deliver us from evil God we know that there's more than meets the eye in the world would you protect us from the evil one to protect us from our own sinful natures and grow us more into the ways of Jesus for it is yours king yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and all God's people said amen amen and so now we turn to a meal that reestablishes a whole different political framework. Where no matter your nationality, no matter your socioeconomic status, we come together centered in the kingdom of God before the person of Jesus Christ. Represented in his broken body through broken bread and in his, and then common juice which represents his bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have some of those elements available, I strongly encourage you, to gather those together, gather together other friends and loved ones, and to partake in remembrance of Christ. But before you do, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, partake in the Lamb.